All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 9 to 12 this morning. Hebrews 6, verse 9 says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that you might be our teacher and our guide this morning. Lord, knowing that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And it is the spiritual man who is taught spiritual things by the Spirit himself. Lord, we greatly desire to be such spiritual men. And we greatly desire today, Lord, that you might teach us in the inner man the things of the Spirit of God. So, Lord, be with us today and bless us. Lord, help us to rightly divide and to understand the word of truth. And we pray that you would build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is encouraging the Hebrew Christians, assuring them of his love for them and his favorable perspective concerning their salvation. Though he spoke some very hard and difficult words as a result of their sin, because they had become dull of hearing and they were not advancing in regards to their salvation as they should. Therefore, he found it necessary to issue a severe warning to them concerning the sin of apostasy and the judgment that will come upon those who fall away. However, having issued this warning, he then turns to encouragement. He wants to assure them that while he has spoken to them about apostasy, he's not speaking about them. He does not think that this sin in this state is true of them. He is convinced of better things concerning them, the things that accompany salvation. He is convinced that they are indeed true, sincere believers, even though there is some presence of sin, even though there is there are some thorns and thistles in their life, there is the need for them to be sanctified. However, there's also clear evidence of God's grace in them. And it is this evidence of God's grace that is forming his opinion of their redemptive state, which is why he is convinced of better things concerning them, the things of salvation, even though he spoke to them in this way, warning them of the danger and outcome of apostasy. Now, this proved to us that there must be a proper balance between warnings and threats and affirmations of love and encouragement. We must know how to exercise both at the proper time and place. It also proved to us that the threats and warnings of Scripture are not inconsistent with love of the saints. That we can love a man, have his best interest in mind, while at the same time warning him of the danger of sin. Though it is common in our own day to regard any warning, any threat, any rebuke, any admonition as contrary to love, we see that this is wholly unbiblical and opposite of the apostles' approach. So he loves them, he wants their best, he greatly desires their salvation, which prompts him to both warn them, but then also to assure them of his love. And he is confident that God has begun the good work of salvation in them, and that God will bring this work to completion on the day of Christ. And this confidence is not based upon uh, his belief in their own power and strength, but it is based upon his understanding of the faithfulness of God. For when God takes a man into covenant with himself, he swears to accept that man on the basis of Jesus Christ and to graciously provide all that is needed for the full realization of his salvation. So let's pick up today in verse 10. Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. There it says, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Here, he begins by saying, God is not unjust so as to forget. God will never forget his promises. God will never fail to keep his word. He is the one who has called us to faith in Christ, 
And he has promised to us that he will forgive all of our sins upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is also the one who has called us to a life of obedience, to a life of faithful service to his name. And he has promised that he will reward us for our faithfulness, such as has true saving faith, a saving faith that manifests itself in a life of obedience to God, in diligent service to him, a persevering faith, an enduring faith, an enduring work of obedience to his name. And God promises all of his children that they will not be disappointed in the life to come, but that he will heap upon them rich rewards, great blessings, great honor and glory in the life to come because of their faithfulness to the Lord. We are assured that we have an inheritance waiting for us, stored up for us in the heavens, an inheritance that cannot be destroyed by rust, that cannot be eaten by moths, that cannot be stolen uh, away from us by robbers, one that is waiting for us there in the heavens, and that if we endure and if we are faithful and if we persevere, there is waiting for us this crown of righteousness, a crown of glory that the Lord will reward to all of those who long for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God will never fail to fulfill this promise. He will not fail to give to his people what he has promised to give them. The inheritance that he has set aside for them, he will not fail to grant to them that inheritance on the day of Christ. But we must endure. It says in Luke 21, 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. We must endure to the end. And one of the evidences of true saving faith One of the evidence that God has bestowed to a man the gift of faith is that gift of faith will persevere to the end. For true faith is an enduring faith. It is a persevering faith that will persevere through many trials and tribulations and enter into the kingdom of God. And one of the conditions that God sets upon us is that we must endure to the end. We must be faithful to Christ in order to receive the promised reward. Notice Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in chapter 2, in the letters to these churches, to these seven churches in Asia Minor, there are promises given to them, and the receiving of these promises is contingent, is conditioned upon their endurance, their overcoming this present world. Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Notice verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. 26 to 29, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will go out, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write my name And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And then verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. These are great promises that Christ has given to his people to be given access to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God, to not be hurt by the second death, to be given hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written upon it, to have authority to rule the nations, 
to be given white garments and have our name written in the book of life and have Christ himself confess our name before his Father in heaven, to be a pillar in the temple of God and have the very name of God written upon us, to sit with Christ upon his throne. These are unbelievable promises of God. And if these were not recorded for us in the Bible, we wouldn't even begin to imagine that these things would be bestowed upon God's people. Truly it is said, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and it has not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. But all of these great promises will be granted on what condition? What must be true of us to receive these promises? The one who overcomes. We must overcome, there must be endurance, there must be perseverance in the things of God. If a man does not overcome, does he have any right to claim these promises? If a man falls away and does not endure to the end, then none of these things will be true of him. And this is why we must endure to the end. Now, it should be clearly stated that our endurance does not grant us these things by way of merit. It is not our endurance that earns these privileges, these blessings, these promises to us. All of the promises of God come to us always on the basis of grace, and all of the promises of God are ours in what person? In our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? This is why we offer our amen to God in Christ. They all are yes to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not our endurance that earns us the right to eat of the tree of life. It is not our ability to overcome that gives us the right to sit on Christ's throne. It is not our overcoming that obligates Christ to confess our name before his father. This could never be the case. All the blessings and privileges come to us on the basis of Jesus Christ because of his person and his work by way of his death and his resurrection. However, whatever it is that God requires of man, whatever are the conditions to obtain the promises, these are also graciously provided on the basis of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased for us on our behalf both the blessings and the grace, the gifts that are necessary for us to receive those blessings. And they all flow to us from the Father through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Endurance does not earn us a right to these. Yet at the same time, we can say unequivocally that no one will enjoy these privileges who does not persevere until the end, who does not persevere and have endurance and overcome in the Christian life. We must endure until the end. It is our duty. It is our responsibility, even though the ability to do so must come from God. It must be his grace within us, just as it is with faith and the pardon of sin. Is there anyone in the history of the world who will have their sins forgiven without faith in Christ? That will never happen. So faith is a condition for the pardon of sin. But does that mean faith originates in us? Does that mean that we muster up faith out of our own will, out of our own strength, out of our own ability? Of course not. God must give it to us. But God gives it to us, and then God blesses us because of what he has produced within us. And so it is in the case of endurance. But how can we know for sure that if we endure, God will grant to us these things? Right? Because the Christian life it is about both losing and gaining. In this present life, we lose. We lose our life now in the hope of gaining it in the life to come. And living the Christian life is accompanied with hardships, with struggles, with difficulties, with persecutions, all of which a true believer is willing to suffer and endure because of the promise of eternal rewards, future rewards, all for the hope of eternal glory. And this is certainly the case with the context of Hebrews chapter 6. For the Hebrew Christians, they are living the Christian life, but because of their faithfulness to Christ, they are suffering a very harsh trial. They are experiencing the loss associated with the Christian life. 
they are being reproached for the name of Christ. Their goods, their property is being plundered because of their faith in Christ. And when men begin to suffer loss because of Christ, they are tempted to fall away. They are tempted to say, this isn't worth it, right? Why would I do these things? Because what benefit, what advantage am I getting in serving the Lord? All I'm receiving is hardships and sufferings. This is what happened in Malachi chapter 3. And this is the perspective of an unbeliever or of a nominal uh, false convert, right? There are many people who, when they hear about heaven, they hear about the forgiveness of sins, right? They hear about the blessings. They're like, oh, that sounds good. I would like to have my part in those things. And so they will make some momentary, brief uh, allegiance to Christ, some profession of faith in him. But then when the hardships and sufferings, the persecutions come because of faith in Christ, they say, well, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what, what I was promised. This isn't what, what benefit is there in serving the Lord. All I'm receiving is hardships and sorrows. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Since your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Now, what kind of a man has this perspective? His eyes are not fixed upon the life to come. He's not thinking of heaven. He's not thinking of eternity. He's just looking at this present world. And if all we're doing is looking at this present world, then we may conclude that it is vain to serve the Lord because I'm receiving suffering and hardships while the wicked are being built up. They test God. They commit all of their deeds of evil and they escape the judgment of God. But what is it that sets all of these things aright? It is a heavenly, eternal perspective. It is the perspective of faith that does not look merely at this present world, but is able to look and perceive beyond this world into the life to come and see the day of judgment where the righteous will be rewarded for their labor, for their sufferings, for their hardships, for enduring persecutions, and where the wicked will be rewarded for their wickedness. And then they will suffer eternal punishment. And how do we know that it is not vain to serve the Lord. Well, because of all that we read from Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, these great blessings, these great privileges, are what God has in store for those who love Him. He will bestow these privileges upon us in the life to come. But again, how can we know for certain that God will indeed grant these things to his people, right? What if we suffer the loss of everything in this life? We live a life of self-denial. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross daily, and we follow Christ. What if we even are willing to die and God calls us to die for him, that we are faithful to him, we are obedient to him, even unto death. And then we stand before him and he says, I changed my mind. I'm actually not going to give you rewards or glory or honor, but you're going to go to hell as well. Or we find out, well, there isn't a life to come. It was all just a big ruse. It was all a big lie. And there's no reward for all of my suffering and for all of my hardship. This is why the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if all the benefit we receive for the Christian life is a hope in this present life, then we are the most pitiful people in the world. If all we have is a hope in this life, then we are to be pitied because this hope that we have of eternal rewards and glory with Christ leads to hardships and sufferings in, in this present life. And if all we get out of serving the Lord are blessings in this life, then we are to be pitied because many times we receive hardships, sufferings, afflictions, and persecutions. But what makes it worth it? Why is it that we are not foolish to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ? It is what we will receive in the life to come. 
what we will receive for all eternity. It is this eternal inheritance that God will bestow upon his people. And how do we know for certain that God will indeed fulfill this promise? Well, because of what he says in Hebrews 6 verse 10. God is not unjust. God is not unfaithful. God always fulfills his word and he will never forget you. He will never forsake his people. He will not forsake the covenant that he has entered into with us. And he will not forget the labor of love and the work and the sufferings and the persecutions that we have endured for his name. He will reward us as he has promised. That if we endure and if we overcome, he will grant to us the eternal riches and rewards of the kingdom of God. And can we trust God's word? Can we trust his oath? Yes. God's word is as good as gold. Or we should say God's word is as pure as silver, refined seven times in the fire. As it says in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. God's word has no mixture of error, There's no mixture of lie or deceit in the word of God. It is a pure word. So if God promises to reward his people, then we know that God will do so. If God promises us that if we overcome, he will grant to us all of these privileges and blessings, then we know that if we overcome, God will indeed grant to us all of these things. God has promised to reward the labor of his people even though that labor be accompanied with many hardships, with much sorrow and the loss of all things. In the end, we will not be losers. God will not be indebted to anyone. We will not be disappointed, even if it means losing everything that we have. Even if it means forfeiting our present life, we will not be disappointed because God will give to us exceedingly more than what we ever lose for his sake. This is what it says in Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, they don't even compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. It is unbelievable what God will grant to his people. Now, why is he saying this to us? For our comfort. For our comfort, our consolation, to encourage us, to press on, to diligence, to stir us up, to not grow weary. Because in this life, when we are going through the hardships of this life, it's like we're in the fog of war. We're in the fog of war, and because of our many weaknesses, and because of the flesh, and because of temptation, we grow weary, and we begin to be tempted to think that God is not faithful that God is not filled with covenant love, that God will not grant to us these things. But just as we read earlier from Psalm 77, what was it that was causing the psalmist to have these conclusions? It was his grief. It's his grief, his sorrow, the difficulty of bearing these things in this life that is overcoming him to the point that he's coming to these faulty conclusions. But then what overcame that is he went to the word of God. He saw the promises of God. He saw the goodness of God in the word of God, how God always fulfills his word, and that helps him overcome his grief, his hardships, his afflictions. We can become so fixated on our present struggle that we lose sight of future rewards that await us. But we need to diligently attend to the work of the Lord as he has called us. We must daily shake off our sluggishness, shake off whatever hinders us, press on until the end, and we can know for certain that if we do so, we will never be disappointed. It is impossible that we will get to the life to come and say, you know what, it really wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. I should have lived it it up like the rest of this world. Because they're all eating and drinking and having a good time, being married. They're not suffering for the Lord. They're not mortifying the deeds of the flesh. They're just doing whatever they please. But we can know for certain that whatever the Lord calls us to, whatever hardship, suffering, whatever obedience, whatever struggle there is, however difficult it is, it will always be worth it. It will be far beyond what we can ever hope or imagine. And the assurance of this reward is the very oath of God given to us. 
His faithfulness to keep his promises, he will not fail to do so. So God is not unjust, so as to forget. It is impossible that the good deeds of the saints would go unnoticed by God, that God would fail to reward them accordingly. Now, notice here, he specifically mentions two things in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, God is not unjust, so as to forget. First, he says, your work, your work. Now, this work cannot be the basis of one's salvation. As if a man sets to work, and by his work, he earns himself the salvation that comes from God. We know that this is not what he is talking about. Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, make it very clear that when the loving kindness of God appeared to us, he did not save us because of deeds that we had done in righteousness. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7 says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So very clearly he states there that we were saved not because of deeds we had done in righteousness, but solely based upon his mercy, His loving kindness, the grace of God given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The work of the saints can never be the basis of our salvation. For all of our work is still imperfect. All of our work is mixed with the corruption of the flesh, with the corruption of indwelling sins. And since our work, even as believers, cannot be perfect, they cannot justify us. And if they cannot justify us, then they cannot be the basis of our salvation. This work that he's speaking of does not come before salvation so as to produce it, but rather it is the work that follows after salvation, that is brought about through the sheer kindness and mercy of God. It is the work of faith that accompanies one's salvation. The grace of God that justifies a man also sets that man to work, to working for the Lord. Before our salvation, we spent our life working for sin, working for the flesh, doing the works of the devil. But when God's grace converts a man, it transforms him. It brings him out of the kingdom of Satan, out of the kingdom of darkness, and puts him into the kingdom of his son. And when it does, it sets that man to work for the Lord. The heavy burden of the yoke of sin is replaced with the light and easy burden of the yoke of Christ. We belong to Christ, and therefore we are to spend the rest of our lives in service to Him. Christ is our new master, and our entire lives are to be spent working for the Lord. This is the Christian life. It is the life of faith. It is the obedience of faith. And here, he calls it your work, your work. Not because it was produced by them apart from the grace of God, but because it is produced in them by the grace of God. God's grace produces in them this work. And while it all comes from God, God is so gracious as to even call it our work, or here it is called your work. And while it is our duty to work, it is our responsibility to work, we are called to this work, to this task. And if we fail to do so, it is a sin against God. We are to diligently give ourselves to the labor for the Lord. Yet whatever work for the Lord we fulfill always is a result of the grace of God within us. It is impossible for us to so much as lift our little finger in service to the Lord apart from the grace of God. 
we must have the strength of Christ to enable us to work for the Lord. It is the word, the Lord working in us that causes us to work for the Lord. And God's goodness is seen, his grace and mercy in that he promises to reward our work, even though he's the one that's doing it within us. This is how good of a master our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing but store up for ourselves wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And it is all owing to the grace of God that we're able to do anything for the Lord. And yet, even though it is from his grace, he rewards us as if it is our own, as if it comes from us. This is how kind, how gracious, and how good of a master our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. His grace and his mercy in that he gives us these great promises and he rewards our work even though he is the one who calls us to such a work and he is the one who enables us to even do the work. And here this work is not a singular or specific act of obedience to God but it is the entirety of the life of obedience. This is the work of the Christian. It is the entire life of obedience to the commands of God. This is a fruit, the fruit that accompanies salvation. The result of the preaching of the gospel, when that seed falls on good soil, there will be found the obedience of faith, a total obedience and a desire to obey God. This is the chief employment of the Christian. Serving the Lord and walking in his ways is our primary business. Gospel obedience is the daily work of the child of God. We are to obey him. What time of the day are we to obey Christ? All times of the day. In what part of the week are we to obey Christ? All of the week. In what part of the year are we to obey him? All of the year. What portion of our life belongs to him? Every single portion belongs to him, and we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to work for the Lord. And this is not legalism. To say that the Christian life should be a life of work, of obedience, of faithfulness to God. Because we're not saying this as the basis of our salvation. We're saying this as the fruit or the result of salvation. And it must be a part of the Christian life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 describes this work in this way. 12 verse 13, the conclusion. When all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. This applies to to every person. Now, we cannot do this naturally. It is impossible for us to fear God and keep his commands in the sinful state. But we can do this when the grace of God comes to us, resulting in salvation. This is what we are called to do as Christians. This is the work the Lord sets before us, to fear God and to keep his commandments. This same obedience is described another way in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 to 2. Here in chapter 12, the apostle begins to describe the practical implications of the sanctified life for the believer, what this looks like in day-to-day life. Having declared to them the gospel, now he teaches to them what is the result or the fruit of the gospel. And he summarizes that in Romans chapter 12. This is the Christian life. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the work that we are to give ourselves to. Transformation. Not conforming to this world any longer, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind, fearing God and keeping his commandments. And this is what is true of the Hebrew Christians. This is their work that they have performed. It is evidence of the grace of God that has been given to them. 
Now, it ought to be very clearly said that true saving faith will always be a working faith. Living faith will evidence itself by works, by fruitfulness, by good deeds. There is no Christian who is exempt from working for the Lord. There is not a class of Christians who get to sit on the sidelines and who get to spend their days doing whatever they want, living in sin and not working for the Lord. That is a complete, utter contradiction and it is contrary to everything that is taught in the Bible and everything that we know about faith, about justification, about the grace of God and the mercy of God, right? To say that there are Christians who are exempt from work, who get to live lazy and rent-free and do nothing, this is completely contrary to everything the Bible teaches us. Faith without works is dead. It is useless. Is it of no value at all? And a dead faith will not lead to salvation. It cannot save. It is the faith of demons that is a dead faith. And yet there are many who suffer under this delusion that they can have faith such that will save them in the end and yet not devote their life in service to God. And we must reject this very poisonous error that has persisted in the church since the very foundation. James chapter 2. These are the apostles writing about these things. And James is considered one of the earliest books of the New Testament. And already this false teaching was creeping into the churches so that the apostle must address it and very clearly teach to them that faith without works is dead. And what he says here is in no way contradictory to justification by faith alone. It is in perfect harmony with the teaching of justification by faith alone. It is in perfect harmony with what we read earlier from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. He saves us not because of deeds that we have done in righteousness. This isn't the basis of his salvation, but it is the fruit of salvation that he speaks of here. James 2, 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed him, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This relationship between faith and works, this teaching has been exposed to many corruptions over the years. And again, here, even in the earliest days of the church, they were subjected to such corruptions. Both James and John in 1 John have to address the very issue. So we should not be surprised in our own day that Satan would continue to put forward his counterfeits in place of the truth. And there are two great errors that we must avoid. First, those who teach faith need not be accompanied with works. That faith can be true, saving, living faith, yet not produce good works. Clearly, this is contrary to the word of God, what we just read from James chapter 2. And it grants to men a false, vain security that one can live in sin, yet entertain a hope of eternal life. The second great error is when men replace faith with works and put their hope in their works instead of their hope in Christ. Christ is always our hope, and it is faith that attaches itself to Jesus Christ. It is not our works that save us, and it is never our works that gain us our standing and our approval before God. 
our approval before God is always on the basis of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we partake of Christ by the means of faith. Works put in the place of faith as the foundation of one's salvation and standing before God. This is also a great error and will lead to the ruin of many people. These errors lead to corruption and actually undermine and lead to a loss in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to guard ourselves from such errors, we must hold to these things. First, we must clearly teach and confess that we are justified freely by faith through the redemption that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is only through the blood of Christ that our sins can be washed away. It is only by the imputation of His righteousness to us that we can be made right in the sight of God and that this justification, this imputation is given to us by the means of faith. Faith is the means by which we receive the very righteousness of Christ as our own in it and that we are justified in His sight. And when we say that we are justified by faith, we are not saying that faith is our righteousness. We are simply saying that faith unites us to Christ, who is our righteousness. Faith is the means by which God grants to us the very righteousness of Christ as our own. We must maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We must be very clear on this. Justification is by the grace of God through the means of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But then also, secondly, the faith that unites a man to Christ, the faith that has this effect, will always be a living faith, a useful faith, a fruitful faith, an operative faith. And it will evidence itself by works of obedience to the commands of God. And here, in the case of the Hebrew Christians, their faith was not a dead faith. It was not a lifeless, useless faith, but it was a living faith, one that had evidenced itself by works, a work that God will not forget, he says. But then notice in Hebrews 6, verse 10, joined to your work is one specific work that is singled out. Right? Though the Christian life consists in many acts of obedience, one act is mentioned here as the clearest evidence of true and sincere faith. And notice what he says. It is the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. The preeminent virtue of the Christian life is love. Love to God and love to neighbor. This is the virtue of the Christian life. All of the law and prophets can be summarized in this one word, in this one commandment. It is love that they have both for God and the saints that has given to the apostles such confidence in their salvation. This is why he's convinced of better things concerning them, the things that accompany salvation. He has seen the fruit of love manifested in them, eminently displayed in their conduct, in their love toward one another. And this love that has been and continues to be manifested in them, it cannot be produced by human will. It cannot be the result of our own resolve, of our own strength. No unbeliever can pull up his bootstraps and love in this way. Only the Spirit of Christ can produce this kind of love in a man. No one by his own efforts can have true spiritual love. So when this love is there, when it is present, it is clear, undeniable proof that God has redeemed them. It shows the Spirit of God is within them. It shows that He is a deposit for them that God will bring to completion on the day of Christ the salvation that He has begun to work within them. Christ will never leave them or forsake them because God is not unjust so as to forget his people. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And here this fruit, this whopper of a fruit, the fruit of love is right there evident in them. It is evidence that has accompanied their salvation. And this is why he is convinced 
of greater things for them. Right? When God created man, God created man in his own image and likeness. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God created man in his image. And one of the chief characteristics of man in his created state, in his original state, in the state of original righteousness, is love. Love of God and love toward his fellow man. For 1 John chapter 4, 16 tells us one of the attributes of God is that God is love. Morally and ethically, man in his original state was made in the likeness of God. He was without sin. He was righteous and holy before the Lord. And this is seen in his love, love for God and love for his neighbor. But did man maintain that state? Did he continue in his state of original righteousness? Well, no, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that through the temptation and the deception of the devil, man was seduced and he fell into sin. He transgressed the law of God. And when man fell into sin, what happened to the image of God in man? It became corrupted, right? It became marred. It became disfigured, right? Instead of there being righteousness... Now there is unrighteousness. And instead of man being filled with love, he's now filled with what? Hatred, malice, envy, strife, contentions, right? This is what is true of man in the natural state. In the natural state now, because of sin, morally and ethically, men do not bear the image of God, an image of righteousness, but whose image do they bear now? Who is their spiritual father? Man now bears the image of Satan. He is the spiritual father of all sinful men. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 confirms this. John chapter 8, verse 44. John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. And where does murder proceed from? Does it issue from love or from hate? It comes from hatred. Hatred for God, hatred for those that bear the image of God. Also, one of the commandments that show that we love God is that we speak the truth, because God is true. But what does the devil speak? He only spews out lies because he hates the truth because the truth is of God and he hates God and he hates anything that bears the image of God, anything that is from the goodness of God. The devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He is filled with malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, strife. Where he is known, there is contention, brawling, all these types of things, factions there amongst the people. He is completely bereft of any love of God or love toward man, but only hatred. And in the sinful state, this is the pattern that men follow. Ethically, they behave like the devil. Just as the devil is filled with hatred and malice towards God and man, So mankind naturally are filled with hatred and malice toward God and toward their fellow man. As it says in Titus 3.3, we read earlier, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, spending our days, the life of the person, The work that they are committed to is a work of malice, envy, hatefulness. The works of the devil, the deeds of the devil, of the flesh, are evident in men in the natural state. Galatians chapter 5, and the reason the whole world hasn't descended into complete anarchy and chaos is not because of the innate goodness of man, 
but because of the goodness of God. Because if God let men act upon every impulse within their wicked hearts, we, it would be unlivable, unbearable to even live upon this present world. It is God's kindness that keeps it from descending into utter chaos and anarchy. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom in an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. There, the freedom, the liberty that Christ calls us to, the liberty and the freedom to live a godly life, is the freedom to serve and to love one another. And that should be the goal of the Christian life. But if in the church, instead of there being love, unity, harmony, instead we're biting and devouring one another, where does that fruit come from? Is that part of the Spirit of God within us? Does the Spirit teach believers to bite and to devour one another constantly? To constantly be embroiled in controversy and strife and conflict and contention with one another? That's not the fruit of love. To love our neighbor as ourselves, that is the fruit that comes from the devil. Well, when salvation occurs, the image of God in man is being restored. It is being renewed. The image that was marred and corrupted by sin is being restored back into the image of God in that we are being restored into the image of his Son. And the ultimate goal, the final outcome of our salvation, is that we will be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. What was true of Jesus Christ as a perfect righteous man will also be true of us. We will perfectly bear this righteous image when our salvation is brought to its completion. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, it speaks of our salvation in these terms, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren, and that we might be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? The ultimate goal of our salvation, God has predestined us so that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. This is where our salvation will end. And that begins to take place in the life of the person at their conversion. Now, it's not completed until the day of Christ. When we see him face to face, according to 1 Corinthians 13, then we will be like him. We will be transformed into this glory. And in this present life, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. As we are being sanctified, what is shining within us more and more and more? What is becoming more clear, more evident, more manifest in our life? It is the image of Christ. The image of Christ within us, as our life conforms more to his life, then his life is seen within us. And we are bearing his image, though in this life, it will always be a mixture, a mixture of the image of Christ and the deformity of the sin and of our own flesh. But in the life to come, we will bear that image perfectly. But we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. This is as it says in 2 Corinthians three seventeen to 18. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. We are beholding the glory of the Lord. Now in this life, we're not seeing it with our own eyes, and we're not seeing it in the full way that we will when he is revealed from heaven but we are seeing the image of Christ in the word of Christ. And as we interact with that, we are being transformed into the same image so that the glory of the image of Christ is manifesting itself in our life more and more and more. From our conversion until our death, this is what is taking place 
in the Christian life. Step by step through our sanctification, our life is conformed more to the life of Christ. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy man, we also will bear the image of the heavenly man. This restoration will be brought to its perfection, to its completion on the day of Christ. We will bear his image perfectly in the life to come. And what will that look like in heaven? We will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the life of heaven. It is love to God, and it is love to our neighbor, and we will do that perfectly in the life to come. This is what is waiting for us. But this bearing of the image of Christ is not confined exclusively to the life to come. It begins in us when? It begins at our conversion. It begins in this present life, in this present world. For the grace of God that justifies a man and the grace of God that will perfectly conform that man to the image of Christ is the grace of God that will sanctify that man, that will change him from one degree of glory to another. And then what is that practically speaking? It is love of God and it is love of neighbor. This change, this image is most clearly seen in the love that we have for God and in the love that we have for the saints. It is love and its many fruits. So that the sum of the Christian life can be defined in the one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is what the apostle said in Galatians 3.14. For how can we love our neighbor as ourselves without at the same time loving God? Loving God. Love of God, love to neighbor. This is the image of Christ within us. This is the life of heaven. It is the life of love. And the clearest evidence that one has been born of God is seen in his love. True spiritual gospel love that can only be produced by the Spirit of God. This love is not natural. It is not natural to man. It is foreign to man in his natural state. Just as it is impossible for a dead man to breathe, it is impossible for a dead man to talk, it is impossible for a dead man to walk. A dead man cannot do those things that living men can do. So also it is impossible for those who are spiritually dead to love in this way, to have a true spiritual love. There is a worldly love that the world knows and that the world is able to practice. This is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 5. That if you love those who love you, what different are you than the Gentiles? Even they do these kinds of things. But the love that he's talking about here, the love that is seen in the Hebrew Christians, this love is of a more sublime nature. It is a heavenly love. It is a love that comes from God and is born in our hearts through the work of the Spirit. It is true spiritual love. For notice in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, who is the ultimate object of their love? Well, notice he says, love which you have shown toward his name. And whose name are we talking about? It is the name of the Lord. It is the name of our Lord that we are speaking of. Their love for the saints that is seen in the ministry to their needs has as its foundational principle love for God. Love for God that is known because God first loved them and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. We cannot know the love of God and we cannot love God truly without having the forgiveness of our sins. Because it is the forgiveness of sins that teaches to us the love of God, and by which we then are able to love our neighbor. Without the pardon of sin, there is no true love of neighbor, as our apostle is speaking of here. It is the love of God given to them that is causing them to love the brethren by ministering to their needs. An unbeliever cannot love in this way. Because an unbeliever does not know the love of God. So whatever love is found in an unbeliever, right? And they do have a type of love. An unbeliever might have pity for his fellow man. If he sees his fellow man in destitution, 
his humanity might well up within him and motivate him to do some act of kindness to assist and to help his fellow men. And in one regard, that is better than him kicking him, right? Or spitting on him when he's in his miserable state. But if that act of compassion and kindness and love is not proceeding from faith, it's not coming from love for God, it does not have as its ultimate goal the glory of God and the true spiritual good of that man, care not merely for his body but also for his immortal soul, then it is not the love that we're speaking of here. It's not gospel love. It's not true spiritual love. It is not the love produced in a man by the Spirit of the Lord. However, the compassion of the Hebrew Christians is emanating from their love of God. They love God because He first loved them. And God's love to them was revealed in that He sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for their sins. They are children of God who have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ. And then when they see other children of God who they know also have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, their brothers in the Lord, and they see them in their need, it is their love for God and their love for Christ which is compelling them to minister to their needs. And their love is not empty, cheap words. Go and be filled, be warm and filled but it is love that compels them to sacrifice their own life for the sake of their brethren. It is seen in acts of love, and in the case of the Hebrew Christians, it also has been accompanied with sufferings because we know that they also are suffering the loss because they are associating with those who have been thrown into prison. Their love for the saints is costing them on two fronts. They are losing the use of their own resources, because they're freely giving to minister to the needs of others. And as a result of doing this, they're suffering reproach for doing so. And yet, what do they continue to do? They continue to give. They continue to minister. They continue to be faithful and to give this labor of love. They have ministered and continue to minister to the saints, which shows that this love is not proceeding from the flesh. It's not the natural love that a man has, but this is the love coming from the Spirit of Christ within them. And the same love that they show toward the brethren must be found in who? It must be found in each and every one of us. And if this love is not found in us, then what is this confession of faith that we claim to have? What is this salvation that we say that we are partakers of? What is this forgiveness of sins that we say that we know? Because the true forgiveness of sins will lead to this kind of love, a selfless love toward the saints. And if we do not love in the way that they love, then there is no reason for us to be convinced of better things, the things that are concerning salvation. We must examine our lives and test ourselves to see, is our faith a living faith? Is it true faith? Is it a fruitful faith? And where, what fruit should we begin with? What is at the top of the list? The fruits of the Spirit are love. We begin with love. And if love is absent, we fail the test. We need to look no further. So may this love then abound within us as well. The love that God has shown for us in forgiving us of our sins, may it cause us in turn to love one another, to care for one another, to minister to the needs of the saints and to fulfill our duties one to another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, first of all, grateful, Lord, that you have poured your love into our hearts. Lord, knowing that really there is nothing more foreign to who we are as sinners than true spiritual love, completely contrary, Lord, to everything that we know or experience in the state of sin. And Lord, the reason that this is no longer true of us is not because of anything that we have done. Lord, we know it's not because of deeds of righteousness that we have done, but rather it is because of your love that you have given to us freely based upon your choice, Lord, your election, your kindness and mercy. Lord, everything that we are and everything that we have has come graciously from you. 
And Lord, you have proven your love for us by sending your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we pray that we would constantly, Lord, meditate upon these truths. Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, that we might know the depth of the love of God that you have for your people. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue, Lord, to teach us these things. Lord, we know that we've merely scratched the surface of an understanding of your love. We pray that you might give it to us in new and and even richer and fuller ways. Lord, that we might come to new depths of understanding. But Lord, we pray that this knowledge and this understanding would not be merely intellectual. For there are many people who have great knowledge of doctrine, Lord, who can uh, recite and who know these types of things. And yet, Lord, if our knowledge and our understanding of the truth is not causing us to increase in our love for the saints, then, Lord, what use is it? Lord, we know that it is vain and it is worthless. Lord, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to grow and have a deeper understanding of the love that you have for us. And Lord, we pray that as we grow in those things, it would also cause us to grow in our love for one another. Lord, that we would cherish, that we would esteem, Lord, that we would hold each other in high regard, that we would prefer others above ourselves, and that, Lord, we would commit ourselves to all of the acts, Lord, everything that is necessary for both the eternal and spiritual and temporal good of our brothers in Christ. Lord, may our salvation, Lord, and may the reality of our faith be proven, Lord, among us by our love for one another. And Lord, may all men know that we are your disciples because they see the love that we have. So Lord, bind us together in the bond of peace and in the bond of love. Lord, cause us to abound in these things here. And Lord, we pray that whatever would hinder us from such, Lord, faithfulness to you, Lord, the flesh, the world, the devil, which are always seeking to undermine uh, this great fruit of the Spirit. Lord, knowing that the desires of the flesh are waging war against the desires of the Spirit. Lord, help us to overcome those things and Lord, to fulfill our love for one another. So, Lord, may you continue to work within us, Lord, to progress us and to advance us, and, Lord, we ask that you conform us every day more and more into the image of Christ, that as men look upon us, they may see our precious Lord and Savior and his life shining through us. And, Lord, we pray that whatever remains of sin and of the flesh Lord, that by your grace you would remove it and that you would sanctify us and mortify the deeds of the flesh within us so that we might more and more bear the image of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have granted to us such great promises. Lord, that we know that you have begun the work and you will bring it to completion. Lord, you have restored the image of your Son within us and you will perfect it on his day in which we will be transformed perfectly into his image. And Lord, we thank you for this and we pray that you would Hasten it, Lord, and bring it to us quickly. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.